Brother Fisher thankfully left me uh, with two Sundays that kind of take care of themselves. Last Sunday we looked at Palm Sunday, and today obviously is Easter Sunday, so we all know what we're going to be looking at, right? But we've got uh, four Gospels we can look at, and as I thought about it, there's a few different ways you can look at this. Uh, I could have gone to Matthew. Matthew's the guy who says, there, when after Jesus was put in the tomb, Pilate set Roman guards, his own personal Roman guards there to guard the tomb. And when Jesus arose that morning, they were knocked flat. I mean, these guys were elite guys, knocked flat. And I could have gone into an apologetic of how we know that Christ rose. But I think we understand that. Most of you here, we're saved. We accept that. We know that Christ rose. So I wanted to take a little bit different path here this morning. And I wanted to go to what the Gospel of Luke has to say. Because the Gospel of Luke, if you want to see the whole resurrection day, everything that happened, minus some details, Luke really gives us the broadest picture. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I don't have time today. I'm going to go probably longer than I usually do. And we're going to cover a few things that happened in the day. But if you look at the rest of the chapter, I'm going to go through verse 35 and for time purposes, I'm not going to do what I usually do and read the passage all the way through. We're going to read it as we go. Uh, I'm going to try and save us a little bit of time. But if you want to read the rest of the chapter, and I strongly encourage you to do that this afternoon, uh, read what else happened after, chap uh, after verse 35. Read verse 36. Jesus wasn't done where we're going to stop this morning. But I wanted to look at the impact that Jesus had of course, we're going to look at the uh, open tomb. We're going to see the uh, women go to the tomb. We're going to see Peter and John go to the tomb. But what I really wanted to focus on today was the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was the same day. That was the same day. Then Jesus, after that, the disciples come back. They, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus come back to Jerusalem, meet the rest of the disciples, and Jesus appeared again. We're not going to get to that today. We don't have time. But before we get going, hopefully you've found Luke 24. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to go to verse 35. If you're still looking for it, that's fine. I'm going to have a word of prayer here before we get started. Lord, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. You are alive. And that's the only hope any of us really have. There's no reason to exist if you don't still live. We thank you for this beautiful Resurrection Sunday you've given us today. Glorious weather, it's a beautiful day. We thank you for that blessing. We ask that you'll guide us through your word. Encourage us by your words. And show us how we can be more like you. It's in your mighty and glorious name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 24. I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. So, it says this is the first day of the week. The, the day before was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, of course, the seventh day. This is the first day of the week. It's our Sunday. 
our Sunday. Sabbath would have ended on, at sunset on Saturday. Uh, remember the Jewish day starts at sunset. Uh, but nobody went to check on the tomb at nighttime. Makes sense, right? Uh, so the women got up first thing in the morning. They couldn't wait to get back to the job that they quite, hadn't quite finished. They got up first thing on morning on Sunday. And they set off for the tomb. And it's, uh, they took some of the spices with them. See, they hadn't finished with the burial proceedings. And so they got up early. They brought the spices with them. We know what they had in mind when they got there. They were going to finish dressing him up for, for burial. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is another one of those cases. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that as they walked there, it occurred to them, they had a thought come to them, that how are we going to move the stone? There's a stone across the door. Apparently the thought didn't occur to them, what are we going to do about the soldiers that got posted there last night? Matthew tells tells us about that. But the thought occurs to these women, we're just women, how in the world are we going to move this stone? This is a huge stone. How are we going to move this stone? Luke, and he's the only one, he only tells us that when they arrived, the stone's already been rolled away. John writes that when he came to the tomb, he didn't even dare go in. He stopped at the door to the tomb. We see that in John chapter 20, and verse 5, if you want to read that yourself. But these women, they got no hesitation. They see the stones rolled away. They got no hesitation like John did. They went right in. They walked right in, but they found not the body. Now, this brings us to one of the objections that uh, modern critics might bring up to the resurrection. I'm going to get into a little bit of apologetics. Christ rose. We all agree to that, right? Hallelujah. Christ arose. We just sang that. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Some critics will say, well, these women came to the wrong tomb. It was early. It was dark. They came, stumbled through the dark. They got to the wrong tomb. That's why there was no body there. That's why the stone was there. That's why none of this is mentioned. I don't think they went to the wrong tomb. Because if they went to the wrong tomb, then the angels went to the wrong tomb too, didn't they? Because they're the next ones we see. Verse 4. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed there, but did we come to the wrong tomb? What happened? What's going on here? Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. The women are completely at a loss. The tomb's empty. The stone's rolled away. I don't know what's going on. While they're scratching their head, two men standing there in shining garments. Reminds me of Acts chapter 1 and verse 10. When there were a couple of angels right there in Acts 2. We know that these men were angels, right? We can read it in the other Gospels that they're, just, they're called out as angels. Matthew writes of one angel that rolled the stone away uh, and also spoke with the women. Mark speaks of a young man in a white robe whom they saw after they entered the tomb. I encourage you to read, read the passage in all the Gospels this afternoon. It's a beautiful day to sit down and read them. You, you get the whole picture that way. 
uh, John mentions two angels in white who spoke to Mary Magdalene. Obviously, all of these creatures are angels. And I don't think there's any reason to see it a contradiction. Some people will say there's a contradiction here. Because how come Luke says that there's an, one angel? Uh, Luke says that there's two. Mar- uh, Mark says that there's one. Matthew says that there's two. There may have been more than two. You ever give that a consideration? There may have been more than two. Uh, maybe only the two spokesmen really stood out. There might have been a whole band of them. I don't know. I'm not so concerned that some of them are described as sitting and some of them are described as standing either. We don't need to quibble over these things. I'm not so sure that there weren't several angels present here. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how He spake unto you when He was yet in Galilee? Saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. You see these women's reaction? It was one of fear. By the way, that's what you see throughout the Bible. Every time somebody sees an angel, it's fear. Fear. Every single time. Bowing your faces to the ground is a mark of respect for these animals, uh, these creatures. And the angels asked, they said, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He said he was going to rise again, didn't he? Why do you expect him to be here in a tomb? See, that question, why seek ye the living among the dead? gets right to the root of the problem immediately, doesn't it? There's an awful lot of people who are looking for the living among the dead today. They're looking within themselves. They're looking to this world. They're looking to government, God help them. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? we got a whole world of people who are looking for the living among the dead. And that's the problem. See, Jesus isn't dead! And he shouldn't be thought of as such. He won't be found among the dead. He's not here, they say, but is arisen. That was a good spot for a amen. All right, thank you. And that's, that's what the angels had to say. And by the way, uh, that phrase has been left out of a lot of modern Bibles uh, for no clear reason that I can think of. Uh, It exists in every ancient manuscript that I've been able to pick up and look at, uh, and yet some modern folks don't like it. But if you leave it out, you leave out a definitive statement about Jesus' resurrection, what basis do you have for faith at all? Because as Paul says, without it, without the resurrection, our faith is a waste of time isn't it? There's a lot of other things we could be doing. I mean, if Granite Lake was thawed out, I could be fishing on it right now. Opening day was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I can't even get a line in. It's still frozen tight. The angels, they go on to remind these women that this is exactly what Jesus predicted while He was still in Galilee. 
while he, he was still way up in Galilee, he said that on the third day I'm going to rise. We see in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Let's look at that one. Luke chapter 9, 22. This is one of the places where Jesus predicted this. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus talking. He says, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Jesus said this was going to happen. Do you believe Him? He repeated the same prophecy. If, that, if 9 verse 22 isn't enough for you, he said the same thing in chapter 17, 25, and in 18, 32. That's just in Luke. Matthew and Mark, don't, uh, they leave out this reminder of the prophecy, uh, but they do add that Jesus is going to go to Galilee and he's going to meet the disciples there. That's another prophecy. We're not going to look at that today. But Jesus later went up to Galilee and met with disciples up there. Luke doesn't bother to talk to us about that. You want that? You've got to go to John. That's why I encourage you, let's read all of them. We've only got time to read one passage today, so you can read the rest of them yourself. But moving on to uh, 8 and 9. And they remembered his words, that's the women, and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. So the women remember. Ah, yes, Jesus did say that. He did say that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and he was going to rise again on the third day. And it apparently brought some degree of conviction to them. They, I've heard those words before. That's right. That's right. And I can't blame them for forgetting it. I mean, it's doubtless a lot of shock. Not every day you get to talk to an angel. The angel reminds them of the resurrection here. and Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Maybe they, they didn't take Jesus seriously when he was given these predictions because Jesus had many times talking metaphorically, right? We've seen Jesus talking metaphors all the time. Maybe they'd taken that prophecy about death and resurrection that way. I don't know. I can't blame them. But now, the fact is, now that the angels have explained it to him, now they know that he'd meant it literally. And so the women run off to find the eleven. And then they told all the rest. There were more people gathered here. They told the rest of them, too. Who would have been the other followers Jesus had in the area? It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. So Luke gives us the names of some of the women. Mary Magdalene was the first to see the risen Christ. We see that in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. And that fact is mentioned in each of the Gospels. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. That's interesting to me. Uh, because apart from the crucifixion and the resurrection, we only see Mary Magdalene mentioned in Luke 8 and verse 2. She's a very, very minor character. But yet, she's the first one Jesus chose to reveal himself to. The first one Jesus chose to reveal himself to was not an apostle. It wasn't John. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It was a woman with a history of demon possession. It's interesting to me. 
The people Jesus selected are very interesting to me sometimes. Joanna is only mentioned here uh, and with Mary Magdalene in chapter 8 and verse 2. Uh, Mary, the mother of James, is probably the other Mary who's mentioned in Matthew 8 and verse 1. And these and these other women who, according to Mark 16, 1, included Salome. Uh, but they were the ones who reported to the disciples. They told the disciples what they'd seen and what they'd heard. But notice verse 11, And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. The disciples don't seem all that impressed, do they? It's not... They didn't believe the women. The, they come back, they... The tomb's empty. We talked to angels. Remember what Jesus said? He said He was going to rise again, and He did. He did. The disciples, well, yep. It's not like the disciples were right on the brink of belief, and they just need a tap to go over the edge. These guys are all ho-hum about it. They're completely skeptical. Sometimes we miss that as we're looking at this. Even the women that they all knew well, who told them what they had seen, then they still don't believe. If they didn't, why do we expect people to react real quick to us sharing the gospel? These apostles, they'd been right with Jesus. They'd heard everything He had to say. They didn't believe right off either, did they? They needed more evidence. We come to verse 12, which, by the way, uh, a lot of modern Bibles leave this verse right out, including the Revised Standard Bible. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. As I say, that's left out of a lot of Bibles. Uh, Bibles that leave that out are just trying to deny the reality of the resurrection. That's long, long and the short of it. I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. But let's look at briefly at what this verse says. It gives us a very typical reaction of Peter, right? Peter hears news. Peter goes and does something. He wants to be the first guy. John stopped, We see when we read the book of John, uh, John stopped at the door to the tomb. But Peter goes right in. He was going to be the first one in. Peter's uh, reacted to the news from the women. He, he dropped everything he was doing, whatever that might have been, and he ran to the sepulcher. By the way, even though this verse is left out of a lot of modern translations, they still refer to it in verse 24, which doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, if you, we'll get to verse 24 in a little bit, but they refer back to verse 12, but they leave verse 12 out. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Uh, but when Peter got there, he sees the linen clothes laid by themselves. Isn't that strange? Other than the clothing, the tomb is empty. But despite the fact that the tomb was empty, Peter still didn't believe in the resurrection. How do I know that? Because it says he departed wondering in himself what had come to pass. Peter 
still didn't believe. Peter may not have believed what had happened, but he was impressed. He knew that something marvelous had happened here, but he didn't know what. He's slow to come around, isn't he? Sometimes you and I are, too. So, now here's where I want to get to where I wanted to take this and why we came to the uh, book of Luke here this morning. Now we can take a look at the walk to Emmaus. And this walk to Emmaus is a terrific event. Uh, In fact, it's one of my favorite events that happened after the resurrection. I think this is absolutely amazing. It's a particularly moving scene. It's not one that we typically look at. But Jesus makes one of his most powerful post-resurrection appearances to these unknown and as yet unnamed, they will get one of their names before we're done here today, disciples. It's such a vivid description here that some folks, myself included, think that Luke, perhaps, was one of the guys described here. We get the name of one later on. I'll I'll, uh, steal my own thunder. One of them is Cleopas. He's the only one we know his name, Cleopas. There's another guy with him. I personally think it was Luke because the detail that's recorded here is so strong that I think it was Luke. That's just me. I wouldn't put a lot of weight on that. But let's look at how it starts off. Verses 13 and 14. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So verse 13 starts right off with a time marker. That same day. That same day. So we're still talking in the context of Resurrection Day. Again, Luke doesn't tell us who these guys are yet. But he does tell us that there were two of them. He's very precise about where they're going. Emmaus. They're going to the town of Emmaus. Distance is about 60 furlongs. A lot of detail in there. That's about seven miles for anybody who's interested. 60 furlongs, about seven miles. Uh, That's a pretty easy afternoon's walk for anybody in reasonable health. 20 minutes to a mile is a reasonable walking pace. Take you a couple hours. Uh, Pretty easy afternoon's walk. Now, we don't know exactly where Emmaus is today. Nobody's discovered it exactly. Archaeologists are using this distance to try to calculate it out. And I'm sure that eventually they're going to find Emmaus that way. All you've got to do is seven-mile radius around Jerusalem, and you'll find something sooner or later. Uh, And that's what they're working on, exactly that way. It sounds silly, but that's how they're doing it. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly what they talked about. But he does say that they talked about all these things which had happened. Now, I can definitely say that would, would have included the empty tomb. Don't you think that's strange? That's, that's noteworthy. That's worth talking about. For, they got a couple of hours here as they walk. They would have talked about the empty tomb. They would have talked about the angels, which they would have heard from Peter and the women. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. So while all this is happening, they're walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Luke tells us that Jesus himself drew near. Jesus drew near. Now that phrase can mean a number of things. It can mean either you approach from any direction. Uh, but since verse 18 tells us that these guys both referred to Jesus as coming from Jerusalem, it seems to me that he was headed the same direction as they were. He just was traveling faster than they were. He overtook them. As a bit of a side note, it's very interesting to me the number of times, again, as you read all the other Gospels this afternoon, you're going to see the number of times after the resurrection when people didn't recognize Jesus at first. Here, that's one, they didn't recognize him. It says that in Luke. Uh, Matthew 28 and verse 17, they didn't recognize him. John chapter 20, verse 14, they didn't recognize him. John chapter 21, verse 4, they didn't recognize him. In this particular case, we're told that these men were somehow prevented from recognizing Jesus. They were prevented from recognizing Jesus. It was by nothing other than God's own providence that they would later recognize who Jesus was. And did you know that that's true today too? That's true today too. You can't recognize Jesus for who He is unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. That's the only way. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, there we go, that's his name, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? So Jesus asked a question about what you, hey, what? What your fellow's talking about? And that brings them to a complete standstill. What do you mean, what are we talking about? There's, what else is there to talk about? Obviously, they've been deeply moved by the recent events. Cleopas is introduced here as, as one of the disciples who's present. And he was a witness to the events that they're talking about. He'd seen it with his own eyes. And he'd been talking with his friend here, that we don't know his name, I think it was Luke, as if this were common knowledge. But this guy who walks up on him, are, are you a stranger? Did you just stumble into town? You have no idea what's going on here? You're a stranger? You don't know what's just happened? Apparently everybody in Jerusalem was talking about the events that surrounded Jesus' crucifixion. This was, this was not an ordinary crucifixion, and everybody in town knew it. And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and their rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Jesus says, what things? 
He still plays Jimmy the Dunce. He's, he's acting dumb here. And they answered by telling him about Jesus, who they describe as a prophet. They didn't know too much about Jesus, but they knew that much. He was a prophet, that's for certain. He's not an ordinary man, he's a prophet. We're going to see when we get to verse 21, which will be the next one we look at, that they were hoping for redemption. But even if they didn't know everything else about him, they knew he was a redeemer. They knew he was a redeemer. They, at the very least, had been impressed by his words and his deeds. And they said that they were both mighty. Both his words and his deeds were mighty. Did you notice that? They'd seen the power of God working through this Jesus. But despite all that they'd seen, they lamented that the Jewish leadership had destroyed him. Notice they didn't blame the Romans. They blamed the Jewish leadership. They blamed the chief priests and our rulers who delivered him up and condemned him and had him put to death. Now the word condemned there, that implies that the Romans were involved because the Jews didn't really have the power to condemn. Uh, but the blame still put squarely on the shoulders of the Jews. But we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. They were looking for a Redeemer. And they thought this Jesus was it. And beside all this, today is the third day since those things are done. The hope that these men had was that they trusted that Jesus was going to be the one who would redeem His people. They knew Him as the promised Deliverer. Now, let's think about this term, redeem. Redemption in Jesus' day referred to the payment of a price. Still does today. A little bit, not quite so much. Well, I mean, when we use redeem, you go to other states, you see redemption centers where you bring your bottles in and get a nickel back. Uh, but redemption meant a payment of a price. Now, think about that for just a minute. It's completely inconceivable that God would ever pay anything to anyone. So what's going on here? Well, for starters, I'll point out to you that it cost God a great deal to redeem you and I. It cost God a great deal to redeem you and I. And Calvary made that cost pretty clear. The idea that God would be willing to go to such length tells me a couple of things. It tells me that I have a certain hope. If God went to that kind of effort to send His Son here, let Him live here for 30-some-odd years, then go to the cross in this elaborate plan, raise Him again on the third day, I have a pretty certain hope. And it also assures me that God really does care if He put that kind of effort into it. That's my Redeemer. They go on, they're talking, Yea, and certain women also of our own company made us astonished 
which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. So these two guys, they point out that the women who told them about the emptiness of the tomb and the angels that they'd seen, they didn't say who it was that actually entered the tomb to check, but we all know it was Peter. Uh, the fact that they give a plural means that the, Peter wasn't alone. We know from reading John that it was Peter and John. And that, that served to verify what the women said. Yeah, the women said that this was a tomb, the tomb was empty, the stone was rolled away. Uh, and these guys went and checked, and sure enough, yep, the stone's rolled away and the tomb's empty. No further information, but that's a fact. Uh, but these guys were upset, Peter and John, because they saw him not. Apparently, the folks who went to the tomb had hoped to see Jesus. And they're disappointed when he's not there. And he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? See, these kind of doubts that these guys are showing brings a pretty sharp rebuke from Jesus. I mean, these guys don't even know who Jesus is. Jesus, they, he asks, hey, what things are you talking about? And they give, tell him, and Jesus, what's Jesus' next words? You fools! That's a pretty sharp rebuke. That isn't a compliment in any way. Jesus is kind of implying here I expected better from you. Can't you guys do better than that? He then goes on to explain that the root of their problem is that they failed to accept what was taught in biblical prophecy. That's your problem. So first he insults them, and then he goes right to pointing out, now here, here's why you've got a problem. See, the prophets had spoken plainly enough. I mean, we just saw a prophecy Jesus had made that I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again on the third day. When all those things happen, there's a natural conclusion you should come to, right? See, these fellows aren't sharp enough to realize what they're saying. They'd grabbed at the prediction of the glory of the Messiah, but they'd failed to take to heart the prophecies about the rest of his mission. They recognized that he was the promised Redeemer, but they didn't believe all the rest that was entailed in that. It was all there in the Old Testament, but they couldn't see it. Jesus makes it clear that these things were a necessary part of the story of Jesus. The Messiah has to suffer. But that suffering isn't going to be the end. He also needs to enter into His glory. See, and if he, how is He going to enter into His glory unless He's raised again? 
God hasn't been defeated here. God triumphs through the sufferings of Christ. As Derek was just singing, he's alive. He's alive and I'm forgiven. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus then does a systematic Bible study. He started at Moses and all the prophets and then went on to all the things that spoke of himself in the rest of the scriptures. Did you know that the Old Testament speaks of every aspect of Jesus' ministry? The Old Testament speaks of every aspect of Jesus' ministry. Do you ever look at the Old Testament with that in mind? It's not a pile of stories. It's a picture of Jesus. I challenge you to read Old Testament that way. Look for Jesus in this picture. Luke doesn't bother to tell us which passages they, look, they talked about. But he does make it clear that they covered the whole Old Testament. See, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see a consistent divine plan that's being worked out. And that plan, in the end, meant the suffering and death of the promised Messiah. And throughout the Old Testament, we can see the terrible nature of sin, and we can see the deep love of God. And Calvary is what brought all that together. These guys had wrong ideas of what the Old Testament taught, and as a result, they had wrong ideas about the cross. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. So they finally get to Emmaus. And Jesus makes it look like he's going to go on further. If they hadn't pressed him to stay, there's no reason to think that he would have stayed. That doesn't mean Jesus was lying to him. It simply means that without an invitation, he wasn't going to stay. These two guys were impressed with his Bible lesson, and they wanted to continue it. Without a doubt, the place that they stayed was one of their houses. In any case, it was getting towards evening. It was time to stop for the night. Come on, Jesus, starting to get a little dark. Why don't you just stay here with us? And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. So as they sat down to supper, Jesus goes through the normal motions for a Jewish meal. You know, this was before the invention of sliced bread. So you have to take a loaf of bread and you've got to break it up. So Jesus starts doing that. And normally these would be performed by the host, not the guest. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? He's the guest. They just invited him in, but he breaks the bread. The bread was typically broken at the same time as a prayer of thanksgiving was offered. And something, I don't know what, but something in the action of breaking that bread opened the eyes of these men and they recognized who he was. 
Maybe it was familiarity. Maybe it was a similarity that happened uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000. I don't know. Maybe these guys were present at the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe Jesus gave a similar prayer. I don't know. But whatever the case is, is, as soon as they recognized him, he vanished from their sight. And they said unto one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? As soon as they recognized Jesus, they realized what had happened on their journey. They remembered how their hearts burned within them the whole time. Jesus' teaching had stirred them deeply. Remember they'd said earlier how Jesus had been powerful in words and deeds. They spoke of him as opening the scriptures to him. And when he spoke, the hidden meanings of the Bible had suddenly come clear to him like nobody else. And they arose up that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. Their immediate reaction is to tell the other believers. It seems to me that they never even bothered to finish their meal. All Jesus did was break the bread. They recognized him. I don't think they stayed and ate anything. I think they got right back on the trail and headed back south again. It says they rose up that same hour. Apparently, the arguments that they'd just used with Jesus about the lateness of the hour, well, it's getting late, Jesus, why don't you stay? None of that matters anymore. Lateness of the day doesn't matter anymore. All right, we've got to go tell the others. And they jumped right up that same hour. And they went back to Jerusalem where they just left. And they found the eleven, who apparently haven't left the room. This has got to be, by the time they make a round trip, this has got to be close to five hours later. And the eleven are still sitting there, twiddling their thumbs, wondering what's going on. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. They come back. And they share the news. Now, the disciples uh, shared that Jesus had appeared to Simon, which we see other places when we go there. By this time, Jesus has revealed himself to Peter. And shared the story of how Jesus appeared to him as they had walked. And how they recognized him as he broke bread. And they were obviously pretty impressed. So as we look at this, i got to ask you, is there really any doubt about the resurrection? When none of these people were really expecting any of this to happen. The women went there expecting the body to still be there. They brought spices with them. They were going to dress the body. They didn't expect it to be raised. And there it was. They come back. The disciples didn't believe a word the women said. Peter and John had to go, i got to check, and check this out myself. And they ran back. Sure enough, the women were right. No, none of these people, it's not like they were on the edge of their seat. Oh, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. Jesus said it, remember? That's not what it was. In spite of everything that they were expecting, Jesus proved otherwise. That in itself 
is evidence for the resurrection, isn't it? Aren't you glad that he rose so that you can live? All right, that's better. Have you shared that gospel with anybody lately? Because that's what we're called here to do, isn't it? Let's share that gospel as we go forth. You mind if I close in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for the resurrection. Just like these disciples, sometimes we're hard to believe. We take a lot of persuading sometimes, but you did have victory over death, victory over the grave, and your resurrection is the only hope we have. I've said it all morning long this morning, but I'm really struck by it. You are a mighty God, and it is an honor and a privilege to serve you. Give us the boldness, give us the strength to share that gospel with this world around us, this world that's lost and dying without you. Help us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.